The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author and award-winning science writer, Elizabeth Zavoda. She's written the book, What Makes a Hero? The Surprising Science of Selflessness. She's written for the New York Times, Psychology Today, Popular Science, and Wired Magazine. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so we're going to be talking about your book, What Makes a Hero? Uh, Well, I guess my first question is, why did you decide to tackle this topic in the first place of what makes a hero and why now? Right. Yeah, that's a great question because this is such a huge topic. Um, I I think that you have to go pretty far back into my childhood. I actually, um, you know, I'd studied events like the Holocaust when I was younger. So from a pretty early age, I, I was aware that there was this problem of great evil in the world. And you know, sometimes people didn't do anything about that evil, but then I was also reading about rescuers, the, the people that really did put themselves out there to save people who were in dire straits and sometimes putting their lives on the line in order to do so. So, um, you know, as I grew up and became a writer later on, the, these questions continued to tumble around in my mind of why are some people so willing to help their fellow human beings but other people are really just looking out for themselves. And a few years ago, I heard about uh, some interesting research ventures getting underway here in the Bay Area. One was over at Stanford University, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, and then the psychologist Phil Zimbardo, who you might be familiar with. He uh, did the famous Stanford prison experiment back in the 1970s. Um, He had studied evil uh, for a good portion of his career, and this few years ago, he he decided to kind of do a complete 180 and focus on the science of heroism, um, do research on heroism, and try to find out if there are ways that we can I don't mean to to interrupt you. I I just want to interrupt you for a minute, because when we're talking about heroism or hero and what makes a hero... Uh, what don't we have to define what is a hero? So sometimes I'm confu- confused about what he- who is a hero, what is a hero? Can we define a hero? Right, yeah, and people actually do define this many different ways. It's kind of a slippery term, and the term that's used in the literature most of the time is uh, a hero is someone who is willing to take a risk um, to help someone else without necessarily expecting that they're going to get any kind of reward in return. So, so basically, they put themselves out there, um, they put something of them, themselves on the line, but they don't expect a- anything back. And I, I think that that's a pretty good definition, but 
there are different types of heroes as well. Um, most people are very familiar with the traditional physical type of hero, um, somebody who really saves somebody from, you know, somebody who falls into an icy lake and uh, the hero is the person who, who pulls them out. But we, we also have things like social heroes, um, you know, and you might not necessarily be doing something death-defying if you're a social hero, but you are putting yourself on the line in some significant way. Um, if you look at Erin uh, Brockovich, for example, She's uh, famous for exposing what PG&E was doing in introducing toxic chemicals uh, into the water supply. But, so she put you know, her life at risk for the greater good so that we would have an understanding of how we were being poisoned by uh, big companies and, environment and our environment. But what, what about, it seems to me, the heroes that I'm reading about every day are heroes like football players who beat up their wives or uh, sports heroes who mm-hmm. kill their fellow uh, sports uh, ad- adversaries or uh, so I mean or celebrities who are somehow defined as heroes uh, mm-hmm, except mm-hmm. that they're doing drugs and and uh, you know addicted and, and have all you know lifestyles that really aren't to me uh, a lifestyle of a hero so that's I, I kind of wanted to put the word hero in the context of what is defined as a hero, let's say every day when you pick up the papers or a newspaper or go online. Right. I mean, I think what you mentioned is a big problem. I think there's this pervasive idea in our culture that if somebody is famous or if somebody is widely known by a large number of people, that that kind of automatically makes them a hero. And I don't agree with that idea at all, I, I mean, I really think that if you want to be considered heroic, you have to be doing something for your fellow human beings. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something death-defying. One of the things that I argue in my book is that people who are really top-notch altruists, you know, doing volunteer work for many, many hours a week or dedicating themselves to some significant cause to better the world, that those people should be considered heroic in their own ways. So, if you're looking for a personal hero, I, I really think you want to look to somebody like that and not just the celebrity whose name you see on the cover of the magazines every week. Simply being famous is definitely not enough to make you a hero. Uh, you bring up something else, which I think is interesting, and you bring it obviously in the book, but the difference, is there a difference between being a hero and, just, and not just, but and being altruistic? I mean, I consider myself an altruistic person. I donate to my charities. I think I do good works. I'm in a profession that does good works as a social worker. I wouldn't call myself a hero or even heroic, but certainly altruistic. Right. And as I was writing the book, I I kind of started to see it as more of a spectrum or a progression from altruistic or heroic rather than the two being completely separate quantities. And I, I really like one of the things that, Phil Zimbardo said to me, and he said, uh, there's actually a fine line at the upper limits of altruism where it blends into heroism. So, you know, if you are truly somebody like a Mother Teresa who is dedicating your life day in and day out to the cause of helping others, well, certainly, you know, I I think that that's heroic. And if you look at, at lists of like the CNN heroes, people like that, they often tend to be people who are extreme altruists rather than necessarily death-defying heroes. So, so it's on when, a continuum. You can be altruistic. I don't know if it's at the other end, but your altruism at some point may turn into heroism. 
Is, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there can be some debate about the exact point where that happens, but I definitely see it as a continuum. Okay. Well, you give an example in the book, and I, I guess you call it heroism, um, or you do. The example of the first-time di- di- uh, diver strapped to a parachute with her instructor. Uh, yes. and what, yeah, Describe that, because I had some questions about that example, because obviously you give a lot of examples in the book, but mm-hmm. this being one which stands out. Yes, yeah, so this is a pretty amazing story. So there was a skydiving instructor in Texas named Dave Hartsock, and one day he found out that he was be going to be diving with uh, a student who was a first-time skydiver. Uh, she, she was a grandmother. Her name was Shirley Digert. And before they went up there, you know, she was a little bit nervous, and he reassured her, I, I've done this hundreds of times, and you're going to be in good hands. Um, but uh, unfortunately, uh, as they were dropping down, they encountered sort of a one-in-a-million type scenario in midair. What happened was that, um, you, you know, first of all, that they're strapped together. It was a tandem skydive, so she was totally dependent on him. Um, the first parachute that was supposed to go out and drop their free fall um, it, it failed. It, it got tangled up or whatever. It didn't open the way that it was supposed to. And then the backup parachute, which every team usually has, um, also failed. It, it got tangled up. It didn't open properly. Um, and Dave pretty quickly realized what was going on. He had a lot of experience w- with these types of matters, of course. Um, and a- as they were falling toward the ground, what Dave did is he actually used uh, controls on his suit um, to move his body, rotate it so that he would be directly under Shirley and so that when they hit the ground, his body would cushion the force of the impact. And he did this with complete knowledge of the fact that this is what he was doing. Um, And he was, in fact, able to save Shirley's life. And she did have a few injuries when they hit the ground, but um, today she's more or less okay. Um, Dave, though, really took the brunt of things and he ended up paralyzed as a result of his decision to to save Shirley. So, you know, to me, this is maybe the ultimate example of making a personal sacrifice for for the good of somebody else. Well, that was my question, because I I kept reading that over and over, and I I kept thinking, because not only, I guess, was he paralyzed, I mean, he was paralyzed from the neck down, so I guess he became a quadriplegic, Um, but I was thinking about that. Like he was her instructor, he reassured her that everything was going to be okay. So he mm-hmm. was in a in a, a in a position of being um, of someone who was there to take care of her. He was there. He was the he was the expert, and yeah. so and obviously a very responsible person and acted, I guess one would say, responsibly and maybe hero- heroically. But would it be different? It seems to me that if you were in an equal position, let's say it were both of you were instructors or both of you were just friends skydiving or even in any other kind of dangerous situation, do you think that would make it different, that perhaps it would be not every man for himself, but there would be more, it would be an act of self-preservation? Because I'm not so sure, I, I, got, I think it got a little muddled, because I, you know, mother and child, that's probably the easiest one, you know, a mother's going to save her child no matter what, but right. is a mother going to save her girlfriend in the same way, and should she, or is it, should she save herself so she can take care of her child? Right, I, I mean, there are so many 
different varieties of heroism. And I think you're absolutely right that people that are in certain positions, like if you're a teacher, or we also see this with often people who are in the medical field, maybe in the course of your job, you may be called upon to demonstrate extraordinary selflessness. I mean, I'm sure Dave hoped that he would never uh, have the situation come to pass, but he had sort of thought through it in his mind, and he knew that if I'm ever in a situation where I need to put my students' welfare ahead of my own, I am going to do that. And I think, you know, it's easy for us to say, of course, you know, teachers have to do this. This is just part of their responsibility. But until you're in that moment and you have to make that decision, knowing what it could mean for you, I, I think none, none of us really know what we're going to do. And I think it, it's a courageous decision regardless of what your title is or, you know, what is your designated position. Yeah, I guess. Uh, to me, I think it's more situational, though. Like, like I, I'm not so sure. I mean, it may be courageous. It may not be. I mean, in certain situations, and, and maybe the mother-child one was in a good example, or um, it would be better to um, stay alive for the rest of your children, you know, if you have five other children. I mean, I guess we're getting into a moral, <laughs> ethical thing, but I, it just, it, you, it's interesting. And, of course, you, your book brings up all of these, these questions. I don't know that we can answer them, but, okay, right. that's an example of heroism. Uh, yeah. What makes a hero? Um, maybe we should get on, you know, we're kind of trying, we're defining what a hero is, but what does make a hero? I mean, I, is it genetics? Uh, you talk about genetics, or is it something that we learn, or mm-hmm. is it a combination of both? Uh, I, I would say it's definitely a combination of both. Um, in my book, I talk about different brain studies that do show that selflessness probably has uh, biological roots in, in certain ways. But one of the things that I really emphasize is that there are many things that we can do to improve our own potential for being altruistic or maybe even if the situation is right, uh, being heroic. Yeah, I like the word... I. Heroic, I still go back to, there's something about it. I think, as, as I said kind of in the beginning of the interview, it's so overused. And I really want to kind of, maybe we can just really hone in on why should we be altruistic and heroic and how should we be altruistic and heroic? I mean, um, I know in the book you talk about it, we want to be able to encourage this behavior in corporations and classrooms and individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we do it and why? Right. Well, or course, why and how do we do it? I don't know which comes first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think any time that you talk about heroism, there's potential for doing something foolhardy too. Like if you're putting yourself at risk to uh, to help someone else, you better be very, very sure that you're actually equipped to do that, and that the chances of you succeeding are are high enough to make the whole endeavor worthwhile. So I, I'm not saying certainly that y- you should just fling yourself into situations that you're not prepared for. And in fact, when we look at instances of real life heroism, one of the common denominators is that a lot of the heroes have specific training that enables them to act heroically in a certain situation. Uh, w- one of the things that struck me um, with the Boston Marathon bombings that took place last year, um, a lot of the people who ran in heroically to help people who had damaged limbs, things like that, not knowing if another bomb might go off in the next few minutes, 
um, a lot of those people were doctors, were EMTs, uh, people who had medical expertise. So they were able to to go in and help. Um, Another example that I love is um, the U.S. Airways pilot, uh, Chesley Sullenberger, who was able to land a passenger plane in the Hudson River completely without engine power, like a glider, after the engines got knocked out. And he had decades of experience. And, of course, you know, that was something that kicked in when this very unusual situation came up and he had to decide what to do. And there's a study about this, too, um, that people who intervened heroically to help people who were going to be crime victims, like, you know, people who intervened in a robbery situation or things like that, those people were more likely to have some kind of life-saving training, some kind of rescue training. So there's a lot to be said to having the appropriate training for a particular situation where if you need to step in, you have the confidence that you're really going to be able to do something to help somebody else. Yeah, those are great examples. And I think the word responsibility in some way creeps in. It's not just simply acts of kind of this chaotic heroin, I don't know, chaotic is probably not the right word, but just running in to help somebody when you're really not prepared to do it. And you may even right. do more damage. And I think Sully Sullenberg is a great example or, or the, the Boston Marathon example of the doctors and nurses who were prepared to mm-hmm. do that, who had the training in the background. Because here's, a, you know, in the papers every day, hero saves dog in an ice pond and falls in and, and then <laughs> dies themselves or loses their limb. I'm not sure that's so heroic, but it's painted right. as heroic. And that's really a 180 from the examples that you gave, I think. Right. And nothing um, shouldn't save your dog, but it's, there have to, you know, at this, um, I'm not, those kinds of examples kind of are plastered all over the internet every day. And, and, and they always bother me because they don't have the yep. same kind of sensibility as the examples that you just gave. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. And um, Phil Zimbardo's Heroic Education Project um, Heroic Imagination Project, they're developing education programs. And one of the things that they really emphasize with the kids is you don't want to get yourself in a situation that you can't handle. And sometimes it might be the more altruistic option to notify the authorities in a particular situation if there's something wrong. Like, it, you know, if you see somebody who's having an asthma attack, having trouble breathing, m- maybe you need to get the EMTs on the scene. Maybe you can't do something for that person yourself. And a a lot of it is about having the judgment to know what you're capable of and what you're not and just doing whatever you can in that situation, whether it makes you look good as a hero or not. So self-preservation is also important. I mean, not. Yeah. I mean, it is important, <laughs> um, and I think that comes into play also in all of this discussion. But okay, so we're talking now, and we started to get into this um, genes versus being, I guess, environment versus uh, genetics. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What? You know, why are some people, and you started off by talking about, you know, what influenced you, I guess, over the years to write this book uh, during the Holocaust. You know, there were some people who saved people and at risk for their own lives and other people who didn't. And why is that? Was that the way they were raised? Environment? Genetics? What? Right. There was actually a really interesting study. Um, there was a researcher named Kristen Monroe who had this exact question. Well, why did some people intervened to save their fellow human beings during the Holocaust, whereas other people just kind of looked at what was going on and didn't do anything, 
or were even perpetrators themselves. So she looked at these three groups of people, um, the perpetrators, the bystanders, and the rescuers. And one of the things that she found really distinguished the rescuers from the other groups was that they had this view that they really saw other fellow human beings as just like themselves in fundamental ways. Um, They had this view that regardless of the race, the religion, or, you know, other affiliations that people around them had, um, they were basically human beings, and they saw people around them as sort of a big extended family. And if you see that somebody in your family is in trouble, you are probably going to reach out and help them. It's just a question of how big is your definition of family. Is it confined to blood relatives? Is it confined to people who are part of one particular group? Or is it much broader? And what she found with the rescuers was that their definition of family was much broader. In other words, if you don't see the the other group as the other, if they're the others, then they're not part of who you are, and you don't see yourself as perhaps saving them or... uh, Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it's so easy for us to fall into these sort of self and other classifications, and we have to kind of fight that because I I think that's what gives rise to a a lot of the wars and just, you know, back and forth between humans in this world today. Well, in your book, I mean, this book was a study and it says also, I guess, that you participated in it yourself, (laughs) um, which is an aside. We like, I'd like to hear your story as well, but in what makes a hero. So you traveled across the country, you consulted with biologists, neuroscientists, Uh, any surprises for you as you were you know, like I'm sure you had a certain hypotheses before you started doing this, but then at the end, big, any surprises in terms of, well, your definition of what a hero is or, mm-hmm. um, you know, how all this played out? Right. Well, one of the biggest things that popped out for me was that living this kind of altruistic life or a heroic life, the amazing thing is that how much it can enrich your own life as well, and the studies showing connections between living your life as an altruistic person, those people are much more likely to report high life satisfaction, enjoy good health, and some some studies even suggest that they live longer. So, you know, sometimes I think it's tough, you know, when it's time to get out of bed at um, 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning or whatever to help with a Habitat for Humanity project or whatever altruistic thing you have planned, but you are going to reap so many personal rewards for that decision. So this idea that the more you invest in other people's lives, the more you're also investing in yourself so that it's really a win-win situation. And that's something that I hope that I've been able to internalize and live out in my own life. So if you're generous and you're altruistic, then you're going to feel better about yourself and then maybe experience uh, um, uh, just to be a healthier person all the way around, probably both physically and mentally. But can you take that too far? I mean, what about the people who, let's do another 180, who are (laughs) do-gooders, who are always getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning to do, you know, a half Mm -hmm. a dozen things so they can help other people or get their name on a building or whatever they're doing, uh, and they get a lot back in return. I mean, that is kind of going... Over, isn't that going in the other direction, which can be unhealthy? Yes, of course it's possible to go overboard <laughs> with this like anyone else. And my metric is, yes, you need to have the other person's best interests at heart, but 
you also need to keep your own best interests as part of a picture because it's not going to be sustainable. If, if you're not taking care of yourself and, and you're just putting yourself out there all the time, spreading yourself too thin, I think this is a familiar story for many of us. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to keep that up. And, you know, honestly, if you want to be able to sustain your altruistic efforts and keep them going over the years, you have to take care of yourself, too. Otherwise, it becomes what you call pathological altruism or just sacrificing too much. Elizabeth, can you reconcile this? Because as I understand it, every time I read these statistics, the United States is the most generous country in the world, we as a people, both in terms of time and money. We, we give billions of dollars not only to, in our country but also to you know, worldwide, and we also give of our time. But then at the right. same time, we're the most narcissistic. I mean, we, are <laughs> just, oh, we have this kind of very narcissistic society as well, whether we're on Facebook telling everybody what we eat every day or uh, you, know, you can go on and on with that. So how do Talk to us about that. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point. And I think the way I would look at it is there can be sort of two warring impulses within the same person. Like you can be some, somebody who genuinely does care about others, but at the same time you're getting drawn into the, these narcissistic aspects of our culture, whether it's posting on Facebook or trying to get yourself on reality TV or whatever the case may be. And, you know, one of the things that I think we need to do is to nurture that side of ourselves that's saying that the most important thing is to reach out to others and become an important part of the community instead of somebody who's just out for yourself. And we always have the choice. Like in every day, in every moment, we're going to be facing that choice and we have to make the decision over and over again of which path that we want to choose. So which path, and now I'm going to talk about your path, because you did say that you had an example yourself, that you um, practiced your own altruism and um, tried out your personal heroism in San Francisco. So, you know, we have a few minutes left. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I would see that that in itself as heroic, but basically... um, one of the things oh, was that this filled, an experiment? This was an experiment, or a, well, it's not a controlled experiment. Yeah. It, it was basically just something that I, I was doing on one day. Um, Phil Zimbardo had mentioned to me that one of the things that you can do if you want to build up your heroic muscle is to practice carrying out small acts of altruism, small acts of kindness. So, what I decided to do was um, I live in the Bay Area of California, so I went into the city of. San Francisco, and I'd put together these little care packages. It was basically, you know, a little bit of food, um, some shampoo, uh, a washcloth, a comb, things like that, all in a little plastic baggie. And I went around, basically, um, you know, first I would strike up a conversation with, with a person that I would meet on the street, learn a little bit more about their lives, and make that personal connection. And then if they expressed the you know, this care package was something that they might be able to make use of, then then I would give something to them. But, I mean, what stood out for me was really, you know, the rapport that I was able to strike up with people who, on an everyday basis, you know, maybe I would just pass them by or, or not really talk to them. And I, I think some of us, you know, tend to put homeless people in a different category, view them as sort of an other. But, the, the more you actually talk to people and the more you reach out to them, the more you realize that you have much more in common with them than you have different. And that was probably the biggest thing that stuck with me from that day. How did it make you feel 
like actually feel emotionally. I mean, I, I'm understanding what you got from it cognitively. If you connect with people and you see them not as the other, but it's just part of, uh, you know, they're they're just like you uh, in many ways or most ways. Um, did you feel, I mean, was it a euphoric feeling? Was the connection something, I mean, that was really visceral? Yeah, I mean, I think it was surprisingly euphoric. I, I mean, maybe not in a happy, happy celebration kind of way, but just in a sort of generally fulfilling way that, you know, I'm part of a larger whole and I'm able to contribute to that whole in a way that might make somebody else's life better. And I think knowing that can be very satisfying and it's the kind of satisfaction that can lead to a good life. And I hope that some of the things that are included in my book might help people start to think about how can I live my own version of the good life, and how can I go forward with that intention? Right. Well, the title of the book is What Makes a Hero? The Surprising Science of Selflessness, and it's Elizabeth Zavoda, Zavoda, and it's S-V as in Victor, O-B-O-D-A, and you can go to her website at Elizabeth Zavoda, it's easier to spell it, dot com slash blog and uh, it's been great talking to you today um the book can be bought online bookstores everywhere i assume and um yeah make and i also have an author page on facebook if you want to look me up elizabeth svoboda um i would love to to hear from you if you give the book a read i'd love to hear what you think terrific great thanks so much elizabeth Okay, thank you. Great talking with you. Great to talk to you, and we're going to take a short break now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High definition, premier quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Liza Long. She's an author, educator, mother of four children. One of her children is bipolar, and she's written the book, The Price of Silence, A Mom's Perspective on Mental Illness. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Liza. Catherine, thank you so much for having me on the program. I'm really looking forward to hearing your insights about yeah. this topic. <laughs> I'm going to let you do all the talking, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, oh, boy. I'll, ask a, yeah, I'll ask a few questions. But uh, as I said earlier, on the, uh, be- we talked a little bit before we got on the show, and I, I, I want to mention this too. I recommend that people go to your uh, TEDx presentation, which was great. That was San Antonio, October 2013. Okay, so... The Price of Silence, A Mom's Perspective on Mental Illness. Why did you decide to write the book now to talk about mental illness, um, specifically at this time? Because, you know, as a social worker, I thought, you know, I'm reading your book and I'm watching you on TEDx. Well, you know what? We've been talking, I've been talking about it for 50 years at least. You know, I did a lot of work in the 70s and 80s, clinical work with children and with adults, mental illness. And And not that I'm naive, but... Stigma? Do we still have a stigma? Um, and you say, of course, yes, yes, we do. And we, we so let, let's begin with that. Um, I guess right. the time, yeah. <laughs> well, we do, we do have, still have stigma. And unfortunately, I think it starts with self-stigma. So my process in wanting to write this book, it came out of a blog post that I published on um, the day of the tragic school shootings in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, and that day when I heard the news coming out of Newtown about 21st graders and six educators, and of course a mother and a, a young man who were dead, um, my, my first thought, unfortunately, was what if that's my son someday? And that morning I had bruises and bite marks all over my arms. My son had just been put into a psychiatric treatment facility, and after years of trying to get help for him, I still had no idea what to do for my child. So I I really wrote my truth, uh, which I really hadn't shared with very many people, even close friends did not know that my family was struggling with this, in large part because I self-stigmatized. I didn't want to admit that my family was struggling with this problem. But once I spoke out, I realized that I was not alone. There were so many other families, moms, dads, who reached out to me and said, that's my story. You shared my story. and We're living the exact same thing. So I think based on that alone, we can see that stigma is still a problem. And, and of course, the fact that we've chosen well, to think, treat... Can I take you back? Do you think it was, you know, talking about stigma is still a problem? And I, I guess yeah. sometimes I question whose problem is it? Now, you said you didn't say anything because obviously you didn't want people to think, you know, one of your children had a, was mentally ill or had a mental illness right. problem. But when you said something and you came out with you know, the fact that you do have a child who suffers from mental illness, you, it sounds like you got support, that you weren't. Well, that, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say it wasn't all sunshine and roses, unfortunately. I mean, I, I was attacked in the public sphere uh, for violating my child's privacy, and I, I pretty quickly had to decide that advocacy needed to trump privacy in my family's case. We are a pretty private family. I have not shared my son's real name, um, but 
but by the same token, we have found um, that through advocacy, both my son and I have found that through advocacy, um, we're able to educate people. Um, people really are afraid. I think that's the root of stigma. People are afraid. I hear things like, I don't want that weird kid in my child's classroom, for example. But once you get to know my son, um, the, the bipolar disorder isn't what defines him. And, and that's true for so many people who are struggling with mental illness. So, you know, I do. I think we still have a, a problem with society at large where mothers like to blame other mothers, right? We're really good at that. So sometimes we like to blame ourselves, but, but ultimately it's not about a blame game. It's about finding solutions. So when I wrote the blog post, I said, it's time to talk about mental illness. But now two years later, I'm saying it's time to act. We need better solutions for children and families. Well, I think one of the things that you said in the, uh, in your TEDx presentation, which I found, which I think is really true. um, When people are scared of something, they don't talk about it. And then if you don't talk about it, as you just, just said now, then you can't do anything about it. So, yeah, so, so important for you just in the beginning to talk about it. And uh, I think if we can just start there, why do you think, you think people don't want to talk about mental illness? I think you mentioned also in the book, there's a woman whose daughter was diagnosed with uh, a mental illness, and she said she'd rather have her be diagnosed with cancer because people would be much more understanding. Um, and yeah. I mean, it sounds like a horrific thing to say, but I guess in the context of all the, the, the stigma associated with mental illness, it's true. Um, so that's pretty scary. I mean, do, do you think that if, if you uh, people are, are, are afraid to talk about mental illness because you feel out of as a mother out of control that you can't do anything about it that there isn't a medicine for it necessarily that's definitive there are medications um, right uh, yeah uh, no I yeah. think you know, I, I went your comment about the, the the situation with the cancer comment. Yeah, that came up in a in a group. We were all just discussing things, and we have a, it's almost a little catchphrase. Some of the some of the moms I know who are also struggling with this, where we say, "When your child's in the mental hospital, nobody brings you a casserole." And I mean, it's it's kind of a joke with us, but it's true. You know, you, if you um, it's not really socially acceptable to say to your employer or um, to your friends that, "Oh, yeah, my my son is in an acute care psychiatric." facility this week. And, and if you do say that, the reaction is usually just kind of stunned silence. People don't know what to say. They don't say, how can I help? You know, if I, told, if I told you that my son had cancer, you would probably right away say, how can I help you? But if I say that my son has bipolar disorder, too often, I'm not, I don't mean to say you, Catherine, but just in general, yeah. you know, too often people's reaction is just kind of stunned silence. Like, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know what to do with that. So, and and so I, I don't really know do why there's a difference. Them? How do you help them? Because obviously you're aware, you're out there, and I mean, I'm sure there are lots of times when you do say to somebody, my son suffers is in a psychiatric uh, hospital or he is suffering from mental illness, and then they give you that, oh, you know, what do I say? Do you help them? Do you, what do you do? Yeah, you know, my, my son and I are both pretty vocal about it. We found that we're a little more successful and he's more successful if um, people get to know him first uh, because he's such a delightful person, you know, and that's really how we overcome stigma, by the way, I think, is we get to know children, we get to know families, we get to know individuals who have mental illness. And honestly, as you know, Catherine, we already know those individuals. They just often don't feel safe in having those conversations. But really, in terms of helping families, we, we need more solutions. It's, it's kind of 
frustrating for me because if someone does reach out to me, I would like to be able to say, oh, well, you can, you can do this or you can do that. And there still are so few services for children and families. Wait times for psychiatric care, for example, can be really long. Um, if your child needs residential treatment, in my state, I would have to send my son out of state. And that would be really hard for me that I wouldn't be able to see him very often. So um, you know, all of these things are barriers and challenges for families. And also finances, that's a barrier too, isn't it? I mean, in some of these right. facilities, some of the best facilities uh, or some of the really good facilities are very costly, expensive, and as you say, some of even not even in the same state where you are. So, I mean, there are, yeah. besides the, uh, the barriers that people put up themselves, there are these very real physical barriers, including money, cost. Right, right. I, I, I had... I had some families who reached out to me. I know for myself it's been very expensive. It's about a fourth of my take-home pay to manage my son's illness. Um, and some families reached out and said they had spent you know, the equivalent of a Harvard tuition for years on trying to get their child help. And you know, really, that's beyond the means of most families. In fact, when I was researching the book, I, I found something that really shouldn't have shocked me, but there, there are definite ties with poverty and mental illness in children. And you know, that's one area where we might be able to act to really prevent a lot of tragedies uh, by, by intervening just in socioeconomic um, issues for families. And Liza, what about the other children? Because that's always an issue too. I mean, you have four children, so you have three other children, and their experience with uh, their brother who has a mental illness and how that impacts on the whole family, uh, on marriages, on relationships, on children, on the family at large. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can. Yeah, no, mental illness, as as you know, is a whole family disease. If you have one individual who's suffering from a a serious mental illness, like in my son's case, the whole family is affected. And I always stress, uh, because we've been dealing with this so long in my own family, you really have to keep your other children safe. That's, you know, everyone needs to stay safe. When you have violent, uncontrollable rages, you have to have a plan in place to deal with that. I compare it to a fire drill, right? You know, a lot of us have a fire plan that um, that we drill on with our families. Well, we have a safety plan in my family and we drill on it. And when my son goes into a rage, the younger children know how to act on it. I will say, Catherine, I I realized that um, because my life's been so stable since my son um, got a proper diagnosis and effective treatments, we've looked back on those experiences and realized just how much we normalized a situation that really from the outside probably didn't look very normal. (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't know that many families, well, some families definitely do deal with this, but most families might not understand what it's like that if a child goes into a rage, you know, my oldest son would call the police, my younger children would get to the closest place they could go to lock a door, these types of things, you know, um, sharp implements are, they travel with me, they're not um, in the home, that things like this that, that probably don't, most families don't think about, you know, the steak knives travel with me in my car, so. Yeah. Those are things that families yeah. don't think about. I mean, those are the practical things and, 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 uh, that uh, are the real things that we, uh, you know, that you live with in every day that I think that most right. people aren't aware of and don't think about. And also, I just want, you know, the other children, are they resentful? I mean, because obviously there's a lot of attention that you have to give to uh, your, the child who, as you're describing your son, um, who has rages, uh, who has a mental illness, and then do the, I mean, I have a friend, who, a, a girlfriend who has uh, three kids, and, and two of the kids are, ve- and one of the sons is, is, has a mental illness, and uh, they're very resentful, they're very resentful because they feel that she gives him more attention than the other two. 
Well, I think part of this is you have to have really candid conversations as a family. And I will say um, we're very candid about that. So if the younger children are resentful or if my older son... You know, he's, he's a great student, but really, realistically, from a college standpoint, because so much of our financial resources go to my son who has bipolar disorder, he needs to look at state schools, you know, but these, were, these are conversations we've been having for a long time. And the other thing that helps my family is just, honestly, my son who has bipolar, Catherine, he is just, he's an exceptional human being. He's, I start to cry even thinking about him. He's just, he works so hard. Um, to manage his illness, and he's really close to his younger brother and sister. He's just a very kind soul. He has a very kind soul. And I think that's why it was so clear to me, even from early on, that his rages were clearly symptoms of a, a brain disease. They were not at all him. And I think we have to stress that, that mental illness is not the person. I, I talk in my book about using person-centered language, and I, I feel like that's so important not to say my son is bipolar. That, of course, my son is a smart, sweet, kind person. My son has bipolar disorder. And so for, for our family, when we discuss um, potential resentments, we just talk about it openly. And also, I, I, I have to stress, I think this is important for other families dealing with it. We, we do therapy. All of us do. You have to. This is, it's really hard to deal with you know, yes. when, you, when you have that kind of unpredictable, uncontrollable environment. Um, you, you need to go to therapy to process it. My younger two are in therapy. Um, I, I go regularly. It just helps us to all to process um, a lot of those feelings you talk about. Yeah, I think that's critical. I mean, obviously, coming from a social worker, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that's a, a, a critical in terms of the family health because you're, it's it's not just your son's health; it's everybody's health, mental and physical right. health. Yeah, so that's really critical, really important. Um, when did you first uh, kind of? get a feeling, or maybe it was more than that, um, that your son has bipolar? Well, I I did not know about bipolar until after the blog, interestingly enough, when a a foremost expert in juvenile bipolar, which, as you know, is kind of a controversial diagnosis, but I'm obviously on the side of it since it's worked for my son, um, he reached out and he said, based on your descriptions in your blog, in your 750-word blog, I know this is what your kid has. And uh, sure enough, he was officially diagnosed just a few months later. Um, We were able to see this psychiatrist. He really connected to my son. It was a great experience. Um, And just some simple changes like lithium, um, melatonin at night to help regulate sleep, all of these things, and and a fan by his head, like simple things like that. We've had no threats of harm to self or others in 18 months. So since that diagnosis in May 2013, and I think that's part of my message in the book is that, you know, finding the right diagnosis and the right treatments can be a total life-changing event for a child or a family. Finding the right psychiatrist, the right therapist. And, and right. uh, maybe I, I'm adding a piece to that is I think some people are so frightened, so scared, they get help, and maybe they are maybe not with even the right therapist, isn't the right therapist for the, for the individual or for the family, so it's okay to move right. on. Yeah, it is, and it takes and it takes time, and that's another frustration I've heard from other family members, and that I've experienced. You know, other families have reached out to me. I've experienced this myself. That you know, uh, it's almost like a, a Ouija board <laughs> with the diagnosis process, and it, it almost depends on which psychiatrist or which therapist you see. You know, one person will say, "Oh, your child has ADHD," um, and another one will say, "Oh, it's oppositional defiant." And um, we had people looking at autism spectrum with my son for a long time. And again, you asked when I first noticed. I we thought for a long time that my son not just we, but doctors, uh, teachers thought that he was an autism spectrum child, that 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 was what he had. Um, And so his bipolar presented a lot 
like um, some symptoms of autism, and um, but not others. So that's that's where we just had such a hard time getting the correct diagnosis. But once we did that, he's he's back in a mainstream school, Catherine. I mean, he was he had to be in a pullout program for two years, and now he's back in a mainstream high school. It's just it's really life changing. Yeah, life changing, and uh, I mean it's a good ending. Uh, it's not an ending; it's ongoing. Not an ending. But, yeah, <laughs> story's not over. <laughs> it's, it's, the yeah. story's never over till it's over. But what about what about your frustrations? Because I mean, you know, listeners are saying, well, you know, and and you, my first guest was talking about heroism. I mean, maybe you're the definition of a hero. I mean, if you, and I think right in the beginning when you said, you know, it was really difficult for you to, and I say, come out. It's like somebody who's gay who comes out and comes out to. Their family into the world, um, or whatever, and and so kind of being able to do that, and then being able to subject yourself to the criticism of people say, well, you shouldn't expose your family, um, and then blaming you for him being by bi- or having bipolar disorder, bipolar. all of those things. Right. Uh, so right. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I I don't think you ever anticipate something like what happened to me with that blog. I certainly didn't anticipate it. And like a lot of people who write about mental illness or who used to write, um, people used to write anonymously. I'm sure you know this. You know, when when bloggers would write about mental illness, they wrote anonymously. I was one of those anonymous bloggers. And I'd been writing about it for a long time. Um, But... I, you know, to, the decision to put my name on the story wasn't a decision for the world. It was a decision for my community. And, and that was a very serious decision. I talked it over with a friend um, who wanted to publish it in, on um, Boise State's online journal, um, which I already was a writer for. And we talked it over, and he said, look, until somebody puts a name on one of these stories, they're not real to people. And that, it completely resonated with me, Catherine. I thought, that's, that's entirely true. Um, and in my own community, it's kind of a smaller town, and, uh, you know, I've, I've sit on, I sit on boards, I do PTA, I do that kind of stuff. You know, I'm that, I'm that mom, right? <laughs> so I'm the soccer mom. I'm, I'm, I'm the soccer mom. And uh-huh. so for the soccer mom to come out and say, this is what I'm dealing with, you know, if you're going to judge Nancy Lanza, please bring it to me. <laughs> and that's really what I said. Um, you know, some people have said I compared my son to a serial killer. No way. What I said was, you know, I, I understand how that mom felt. That's what I was saying in that blog post. And, and then the book was a follow-up. It was a search for solutions because, um, you know, soccer moms need to change the world for our kids. That's what we've got to do. Exactly. So you put a face on the disease and you put a face on the family. And I think that's true unless people can actually really see it. And, and know who you are, uh, it, the impact is, is not, well, it's not right. as great, obviously. And also the timing was right. I mean, perhaps, you know, the, um, oh. unfortunately, you know, what happened, but uh, in I Am Adam Lanza's mother, I mean, I can understand why that went viral because it was like, wow. But, um I wrote those words. I have to admit, I did not give it that title. My blog title, the initial anonymous blog, was "Thinking the Unthinkable." That was that was Nate Hoffman, my friend, as well. He's like, I'm going to retitle it too. And uh, Nate and I have worked. We've collaborated on a lot of projects over the years. But I looked at that and I went, "Wow, that's inflammatory." Yeah, yeah. sure, go for it. <laughs> but it draws Whatever. people in. It, it gets people to listen to your story, which is obviously which is what you want them to do, and that's what's critical, what's important. Right. Yeah. So. What about, I mean, you said you're in a group with other mothers or other right. fathers yeah. or other families? 
Mostly mothers, and I know I've been kind of controversial for talking about this, but the re, you know I, I'm, there are dads who deal with these issues too. But by and large, moms are the one ones picking up the pieces. You know, you mentioned yeah. um, broken marriages, that kind of thing. And the reality is that a lot of times it's the moms who are left holding this particular problem. That's it's we're the ones who are still there for our, for our children. I don't mean to disrespect fathers in saying that. I feel like fathers are so important in their children's lives. I'm just you know speaking both from my own experience and also what. I've seen, a lot of times it's the moms. Yeah, and I don't think that's anecdotal. I think uh, the statistics will bear you out. Just, yeah. you know, unfortunately, that's, or that seems to be the way it is. I mean, statistically, right. uh, women stay and uh, men tend to leave. Uh, for whatever the right. reasons, we're not even going to get into that. But I mean, I think. Well, and I don't. Yeah, is, I don't point yeah. fingers. I don't point fingers of blame either. I, I mean, that's the thing. You know, like when when Peter Lanza's interview came out, I wrote a piece defending him. And and some people know. You know, in my in my own life, my my son's father, we we do share physical custody of our younger two children, but he has not seen my son who has bipolar disorder in a long time. And um, I I don't necessarily criticize him for that. And unless you know a specific family situation, I don't think you can stand on the outside and. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, do you know what I'm saying? Like, in some, there are very real reasons that my son's father needs to not be involved in his life, and without going into details. I think the whole um, tenor of this whole conversation is: we're not judging people. We want information. We want to be honest and open. And the reasons why he doesn't have contact with your son—that's that's your family, and other families have other issues. So, uh, but exactly. I guess the real exactly. message is, whatever the issues are, you have to define them and talk about them and work them out in a in a way that is positive for the whole family. And it's different for different families. Right. Every family is unique. I think I used it. I used Tolstoy's quote in my book where I said, every yeah. happy family is alike and every unhappy family <laughs> is unhappy in its own way. And that, that kind of does apply. I mean, actually, my family is incredibly happy, so that, that might not be fair. But, but we're also, we're challenged. You know, we're a happy yeah. family, but we are a challenged family. So. Who's been the biggest support for you? Um, gosh, <laughs> honestly, my son through all of this, I know that seems kind of ironic, but he's just, um, you know, I, I don't think we understood the ramifications. You just can't, you don't, you know, no one can plan a viral event. That's just, it's, people always say that. How did you make your blog go viral? I've been a writer for years. So, you know, the writing community has said, oh, how did you make your blog go viral? I have no idea. I, just, I have no idea how you do that. But, but I do know that if, if you do come out with your truth and people hear it, um, I felt a, a duty then afterwards since we had shared our story and since our names were on that story to really advocate for other families who for whatever reason and there are good reasons cannot speak up for themselves or their kids um, and my son feels that same duty and he's been just really inspirational to me through all of this because I don't really understand what it's like to have bipolar disorder and he does you know and, and he's very articulate and uh, we've even done some teams some mother-son webinars we've um, spoken at a few events together where uh, we've been able to give both perspectives because I feel like both perspectives are valuable. You know, you know, even some people within the mental health community said to me, well, what do you know? You're just a, you're just a parent. You know, you don't have this illness. And that's true. But um, I feel like my voice is really important because I have, to, I have to manage the illness, right? I'm the caregiver for the illness, and there are ramifications there as well. So getting both sides, my son has just been a huge inspiration for me. Um, and his courage in just really 
really, once he got that diagnosis, Catherine, he just ran with it. He's learned everything he can. You know, he's trying to implement exercise and diet, and he's very medication compliant. He just, he's really committed now that he has solutions and answers to building the best life he can for himself. It, it sounds like the two of you are really connected. As you, I mean, you're working to, as you said, I asked you, like, um, who gave you the most support, but your connection with him, I mean, a kind of a mutual respect, I guess, is what I hear you say. Very much. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Very very much a mutual respect and I and I feel so fortunate for that. I also feel really fortunate because he's very aware of his illness and I you know, I've spoken to a lot of moms where their kids aren't really um, you know, sometimes one of the symptoms of a serious mental illness can be a lack of awareness. And I I feel so fortunate that I'm not dealing with that with my son. Does he is he in a group or does he hang out with other kids who have bipolar or um, you know, a support group? Well, honestly, it's been kind of tough for him to make friends, and he he talks about that a lot. You know, when he was at that at the school, um, our school district pulls kids out on, ama- on emotional and behavioral IEPs and sticks them in a separate school. So that's where he was uh, for two years, and it's really hard to make friends in that kind of environment. He does have two really special friends, and I think they um, illustrate how we can really end stigma. One of his good friends is one of the most popular kids at um, a local junior high school. And this young man has known my son for a long time. His mom was my son's daycare provider. They've kind of, they're like cousins, you know, they've kind of grown up together. And, and he's such a powerful force for helping people to accept my son. So that's a great friend. And then on the yeah, other side of the you know spectrum, what? we have, to, I hate to, I, I, we could go on and on. We, I, oh, I know. I've got oh, a, no. 30 seconds. So we have to say oh, goodbye. No. But this has been a great conversation. And it I want to make sure the price of su- you know, the Price of Silence, A Mom's Perspective on Mental Illness, because I, I want to repeat the, the book. You can buy it at bookstores everywhere, online. Um, Liza, great having you on the show this morning, Liza Long. Um, and we'll have to have you on again. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you getting the message out. Yep. Well, you've been listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and and management.